Hello. Welcome to the very first episode of what I guess is a podcast, which I think I will be calling Learning by Literary Audiophiles, which I will shorten to Learning Be Lit AF. If you don't get that, you are not the target audience here because this is intended for students. And if you do get it, don't worry. I'm not trying to be funny with this podcast. So if I'm not, that means I've succeeded. My name is Theoden Humphrey, but I go by Dusty because nothing makes sense. I'm a high school language arts teacher with 20 years of experience. I've taught everything from remedial English to advanced placement classes, generally with success. I am now at the start of a spring break that has already stretched to two weeks because of the COVID-19 outbreak. And if it stretches farther, as it has done in several other states, then we are going to be moving into online and distance learning. Even before that, I know there are millions of parents who have suddenly been thrown into homeschooling their kids, and millions of students who are suddenly on their own as you try to get through all of this and as you prepare for your next step. I want to help. So I figured I would try to make some individual lessons that would sound pretty much like the literature classes I've been teaching for two decades, so that people could maybe use this as a resource. I want to be clear. I do not know what I am doing with this whole podcast thing. I'm using literature that is in the public domain because I don't know how to handle copyrights. I have downloaded my first recording software, and I have written a script, and I am sitting in my bedroom trying not to talk too fast. I have no idea how to disseminate this once it is recorded. I am sure there will be many things about this that I will do wrong. But the content? Teaching literature? That, I know what I'm doing. I have taught this story dozens of times, have read it even more often often than that. This is a little different from how I normally read this story with my classes, because I don't have anyone here to discuss this with, to bounce ideas off of, and to ask questions and answer questions, which generally guides the analysis of the piece but I'm going to do my best. As a general disclaimer, let me state that literature never has only one interpretation, one right explanation. Reading is an ongoing conversation, and the meaning is negotiated between the parties, the writer and the reader. In this situation, then, I am the reader, and so the interpretation here is going to be mine. But this is not the answer to this story. My hope is that by reading through this story and talking through my understanding of it, it will help others to understand it and to find their own ideas about the story. Hopefully it will also give you some practice with the process of reading and thinking about literature, and that will help you with everything else in life. Because literature is about life, about the human condition and the world we live in. Learning about literature is learning about the world and about our place in it. So let's get started. This first episode will be on Edgar Allan Poe's classic short story, The Mask of the Red Death, because what else? I'm going to be reading the text from Project Gutenberg, which can be found at gutenberg.org, G-U-T-E-N-B-E-R-G.org, which is an excellent resource all by itself. The way this is going to work is, I'm going to read the story start to finish without breaks, though I'll pause after each paragraph so you can stop the recording and discuss, or take notes, or go get a snack. Then I'm going to go through and provide some definitions of vocabulary words, because if you don't understand the words, then you can't make sense of the story. And then I'm going to offer thoughts and ideas, sort of one-person discussion of the story's language and effect. I taught the story most recently to an AP class, so I'm coming at it on that level. If my process here doesn't make the story completely accessible to you, please feel free to find additional resources, look up other words that I didn't define, watch the movie version, seriously, It was made in 1964 by Roger Corman and stars Vincent Price, and it is magnificent. Though it is not Poe's story, but an interpreted version of the story. 
You can do anything that helps you make sense of this piece. I highly recommend that you follow along with a paper copy of the story. You can print it from Project Gutenberg or copy-paste the text into a document and then work with it on your screen, and that you take notes and write thoughts down on the text while reading. The key to understanding literature is taking part in the dialogue, being part of the conversation with the author. And that means that you can't just read, you also need to write. Don't just listen, talk back. Here we go. The Mask of the Red Death by Edgar Allan Poe. The Red Death had long devastated the country. No pestilence had ever been so fatal or so hideous. Blood was its avatar and its seal, the redness and the horror of blood. There were sharp pains and sudden dizziness and then profuse bleeding at the pores with dissolution. The scarlet stains upon the body and especially upon the face of the victim were the pest ban which shut him out from the aid and from the sympathy of his fellow men. And the whole seizure, progress, and termination of the disease were the incidents of half an hour. But the Prince Prospero was happy and dauntless and sagacious. When his dominions were half depopulated, he summoned to his presence a thousand hale and light-hearted friends from among the knights and dames of his court and with these retired to the deep seclusion of one of his castellated abbeys. This was an extensive and magnificent structure, the creation of the prince's own eccentric yet august taste. A strong and lofty wall girdled it in. This wall had gates of iron. The courtiers, having entered, brought furnaces and massy hammers and welded the bolts. They resolved to leave means neither of ingress nor egress to the sudden impulses of despair or of frenzy from within. The abbey was amply provisioned. With such precautions, the courtiers might bid defiance to contagion. The external world could take care of itself. In the meantime, it was folly to grieve or to think. The prince had provided all the appliances of pleasure. There were buffoons, there were improvisatori, there were ballet dancers, there were musicians, there was beauty, there was wine. All these and security were within. Without was the Red Death. It was toward the close of the fifth or sixth month of his seclusion, and while the pestilence raged most furiously abroad, that the Prince Prospero entertained his thousand friends at a masked ball of the most unusual magnificence. It was a voluptuous scene, that masquerade. But first, let me tell of the rooms in which it was held. These were seven, an imperial suite. In many palaces, however, such suites form a long and straight vista, while the folding doors slide back nearly to the walls on either hand, so that the view of the whole extent is scarcely impeded. Here, the case was very different, as might have been expected from the Duke's love of the bizarre. The apartments were so irregularly disposed that the vision embraced but little more than one at a time. There was a sharp turn at every twenty or thirty yards, and at each turn a novel effect. 
To the right and left, in the middle of each wall, a tall and narrow Gothic window looked out upon a closed corridor which pursued the windings of the suite. These windows were of stained glass, whose color varied in accordance with the prevailing hue of the decorations of the chamber into which it opened. That at the eastern extremity was hung, for example, in blue, and vividly blue were its windows. The second chamber was purple in its ornaments and tapestries, and here the panes were purple. The third was green throughout, and so were the casements. The fourth was furnished and lighted with orange, the fifth with white, the sixth with violet. The seventh apartment was closely shrouded in black velvet tapestries that hung all over the ceiling and down the walls, falling in heavy folds upon a carpet of the same material and hue. But in this chamber only, the color of the windows failed to correspond with the decorations. The panes here were scarlet, a deep blood color. Now in no one of the seven apartments was there any lamp or candelabrum, amid the profusion of golden ornaments that lay scattered to and fro, or depended from the roof. There was no light of any kind emanating from lamp or candle within the suite of chambers. But in the corridors that followed the suite, there stood, opposite to each window, a heavy tripod bearing a brazier of fire that projected its rays through the tinted glass and so glaringly illumined the room. And thus were produced a multitude of gaudy and fantastic appearances. But in the western or black chamber, the effect of the firelight that streamed upon the dark hangings through the blood-tinted panes was ghastly in the extreme, and produced so wild a look upon the countenances of those who entered that there were few of the company bold enough to set foot within its precincts at all. It was in this apartment also that there stood, against the western wall, a gigantic clock of ebony. Its pendulum swung to and fro with a dull, heavy, monotonous clang. And when the minute hand made the circuit of the face, and the hour was to be stricken, there came from the brazen lungs of the clock a sound, which was clear and loud and deep and exceedingly musical but of so peculiar a note and emphasis that, at each lapse of an hour, the musicians of the orchestra were constrained to pause momentarily in their performance, to hearken to the sound. And thus the waltzers perforce ceased their evolutions. And there was a brief disconcert of the whole gay company. And while the chimes of the clock yet rang, it was observed that the giddiest grew pale, and the more aged and sedate passed their hands over their brows as if in confused reverie or meditation. But when the echoes had fully ceased, a light laughter at once pervaded the assembly. The musicians looked at each other and smiled as if at their own nervousness and folly, and made whispering vows each to the other that the next chiming of the clock should produce in them no similar emotion. And then, after the lapse of sixty minutes, which embraced three thousand and six hundred seconds of the time that flies, there came yet another chiming of the clock, 
and then were the same disconcert and tremulousness and meditation as before. But in spite of these things, it was a gay and magnificent revel. The tastes of the Duke were peculiar. He had a fine eye for colors and effects. He disregarded the decora of mere fashion. His plans were bold and fiery, and his conceptions glowed with barbaric luster. There are some who would have thought him mad. His followers felt that he was not. It was necessary to hear and see and touch him to be sure that he was not. He had directed, in great part, the movable embellishments of the seven chambers, upon occasion of this great fate, and it was his own guiding taste which had given character to the masqueraders. Be sure they were grotesque. There were much glare and glitter and piquancy and phantasm, much of what has been seen since seen in Hernani. There were arabesque figures with unsuited limbs and appointments. There were delirious fancies, such as the madman fashions. There were much of the beautiful, much of the wanton, much of the bizarre, something of the terrible, and not a little of that which might have excited disgust. To and fro in the seven chambers there stalked, in fact, a multitude of dreams. And these, the dreams, writhed in and about, taking hue from the rooms, and causing the wild music of the orchestra to seem as the echo of their steps. And, anon, there strikes the ebony clock, which stands in the hall of the velvet. And then, for a moment... All is still, and all is silent save the voice of the clock. The dreams are stiff frozen as they stand, but the echoes of the chime die away. They have endured but an instant, and a light, half-subdued laughter floats after them as they depart. And now again the music swells, and the dreams live, and writhe to and fro more merrily than ever, taking hue from the many-tinted windows through which stream the rays from the tripods. But to the chamber which lies most westwardly of the seven, there are now none of the maskers who venture, for the night is waning away, and there flows a ruddier light through the blood-colored panes and the blackness of the sable drapery appalls. And to him whose foot falls upon the sable carpet, there comes from the near clock of ebony a muffled peal more solemnly emphatic than any which reaches their ears who indulged in the more remote gaieties of the other apartments. But these other apartments were densely crowded, and in them beat feverishly the heart of life. And the revel went whirlingly on, until at length there commenced the sounding of midnight upon the clock. And then the music ceased, as I have told, and the evolutions of the waltzers were quieted, and there was an uneasy cessation of all things as before. But now there were twelve strokes to be sounded by the bell of the clock. And thus it happened, perhaps, that more of thought 
crept, with more of time, into the meditations of the thoughtful among those who reveled. And thus, too, it happened, perhaps, that before the last echoes of the last chime had utterly sunk into silence, there were many individuals in the crowd who had found leisure to become aware of the presence of a masked figure which had arrested the attention of no single individual before. And the rumor of this new presence having spread itself whisperingly around, there arose at length from the whole company a buzz or murmur expressive of disapprobation and surprise, then, finally, of terror, of horror, and of disgust. In an assembly of phantasms such as I have painted, it may well be supposed that no ordinary appearance could have excited such sensation. In truth, the masquerade license of the night was nearly unlimited. But the figure in question had out-heroded Herod, and gone beyond the bounds of even the prince's indefinite decorum. There are chords in the hearts of the most reckless which cannot be touched without emotion. Even with the utterly lost, to whom life and death are equally jests, there are matters of which no jest can be made. The whole company, indeed, seem now deeply to feel that in the costume and bearing of the stranger neither wit nor propriety existed. The figure was tall and gaunt, and shrouded from head to foot in the habiliments of the grave. The mask which concealed the visage had made so nearly was made so nearly to resemble the countenance of a stiffened corpse that the closest scrutiny must have had difficulty in detecting the cheat. And yet all this might have been endured, if not approved, by the mad revelers around. But the mummer had gone so far as to assume the type of the Red Death. His vesture was dabbled in blood, and his broad brow, with all the features of the face, was besprinkled with the scarlet horror. When the eyes of the Prince Prospero fell upon this spectral image, which, with a slow and solemn movement, as if more fully to sustain its role, stalked to and fro among the waltzers. He was seen to be convulsed in the first moment with a strong shudder, either of terror or distaste, but in the next, his brow reddened with rage. Who dares, he demanded hoarsely of the courtiers who stood near him, who dares insult us with this blasphemous mockery? Seize him and unmask him, that we may know whom we have to hang at sunrise from the battlements. It was in the eastern, or blue chamber, in which stood the Prince Prospero as he uttered these words. They rang throughout the seven rooms loudly and clearly, for the Prince was a bold and robust man, and the music had become hushed at the waving of his hand. It was in the blue room where stood the Prince, with a group of pale courtiers by his side, 
At first, as he spoke, there was a slight rushing movement of this group in the direction of the intruder, who at the moment was also near at hand, and now, with deliberate and stately step, made closer approach to the speaker. But from a certain nameless awe with which the mad assumptions of the mummer had inspired the whole party, there were found none who put forth hand to seize him, so that, unimpeded, he passed within a yard of the prince's person. And while the vast assembly, as if with one impulse, shrank from the centers of the rooms to the walls, he made his way uninterruptedly, but with the same solemn and measured step which had distinguished him from the first, through the blue chamber to the purple, through the purple to the green, through the green to the orange, through this again to the white, and even thence to the violet, ere a decided movement had been made to arrest him. It was then, however, that the Prince Prospero, maddening with rage and the shame of his own momentary cowardice, rushed hurriedly through the six chambers, while none followed him on account of a deadly terror that had seized upon all. He bore aloft a drawn dagger, and had approached in rapid impetuosity to within three or four feet of the retreating figure, when the latter, having attained the extremity of the velvet apartment, turned suddenly and confronted his pursuer. There was a sharp cry! and the dagger dropped, gleaming upon the sable carpet, upon which instantly afterwards fell prostrate in death the Prince Prospero. Then, summoning the wild courage of despair, a throng of the revelers at once threw themselves into the black apartment, and seizing the mummer, whose tall figure stood erect and motionless within the shadow of the ebony clock, gasped, in unutterable horror at finding the grave cerements and corpse-like mask which they handled with so violent a rudeness untenanted by any tangible form. And now was acknowledged the presence of the Red Death. He had come like a thief in the night, and one by one dropped the revelers in the blood-bedewed halls of their revel, and died each in the despairing posture of his fall. And the life of the ebony clock went out with that of the last of the gay. And the flames of the tripods expired. And darkness and decay and the red death held illimitable dominion over all. Okay, so um, now we're going to go through uh, first vocabulary, um, just the words that I think would be difficult for people to know, they wouldn't know offhand, and I'll give a just sort of a brief, my version, uh, informal definition of each. Um, I'm going to go through these kind of quick, uh, so be ready to pause if I go too fast. Um, after that, uh, I'm going to go through my discussion and my thoughts on, on everything, um, and then uh, at some point either after the vocabulary or after the whole discussion, I highly recommend you go back and either read the whole piece yourself again or listen to the reading of it again. Um, once you have a sort of overall understanding, you'll notice a lot more things. So first, vocabulary. Paragraph one, avatar is a physical embodiment of a divine spirit, like a, you know, physical manifestation of a god. Pest ban is short for pestilence ban, coming from the word banner, which means the symbol that disease is present. 
profuse, which is also profusion in paragraph four, means uh, copious, uh, abundant. And dissolution is the noun form of dissolve, meaning uh, death in this case, but also just sort of dissolving as if into liquid. Paragraph two, dauntless is fearless, sagacious is wise, a castellated abbey, an abbey is um, a building that houses monks or religious uh, segregants, but um, if it's castellated, that means it's also been fortified. So this is a religious building that has been turned into a fortified, defensible castle. Um, you got to imagine, if it's an abbey too, abbeys were uh, almost small villages in that they had farmland, they had livestock, they would have beehives and, you know, vineyards and wineries and all kinds of things. So if you had an abbey that was castellated, then you had pretty much everything you could need to survive within the walls. Um, August means respected, uh, admired. Ingress nor egress. Ingress is going in and egress is going out. Improvisatori uh, is an Italian word that means people that improvise. So uh, actors that just sort of uh, act on the spot, take on a role, or uh, sometimes clowns. Uh, paragraph four, voluptuous means luxurious and sensuous. Casements are windows. Braziers are uh, a box that holds wood that you set on fire, so like a large torch, uh, almost like a fire pit for light. Countenances are faces. Paragraph five, reverie is dreaming or lost in thought. Perforce means of necessity. Pervade is to spread through. Disconcert is a state of being disturbed or unsettled, and tremulousness is trembling. Paragraph six, revel is, of course, a party. Uh, to revel is to have a party, to celebrate. Decora, which is used as decorum in paragraph nine, is uh, suitable and proper behavior, sort of the rules of etiquette. Paragraph seven, embellishments are adornments, decorations. Fate is a celebration or festival. Note the homonym fate, F-A-T-E, meaning doom or destiny. Piquancy is sharpness, intensity. Phantasm is a dream or imagination, um, maybe going as far as hallucination. And sable is another word for black. Paragraph eight, disapprobation is disapproval, uh, angry criticism and almost hatred. Paragraph nine, license is uh, the ability or permission to do something. Propriety is related to proper and appropriate, so things that are acceptable uh, within society and polite society. Habiliments are clothes. A mummer is an actor, uh, but related to the word mummy, um, which would have been used the same way in post time because they would have known him from uh, uh, English investigations of Egypt and the Great Pyramids. Vesture is clothing. Paragraph 11, blasphemous means profane and sacrilegious, offensive to religion. Paragraph 13, impetuosity means acting without thought or care, but also acting rapidly and forcefully. Prostrate is stretched out on the ground face down, and cerements are cloth for wrapping a corpse. And in paragraph 14, illimitable means cannot be limited, cannot be stopped, cannot be bound. Okay, so what's the story about? Um, the Red Death is pretty clearly the Black Death. Uh, the Black Plague first came through Italy, 
which was a collection of city-states ruled by individual monarchs at the time, um, when the Black Plague came to Europe through Messina in Sicily in 1347. And uh, the Prince Prospero, the name is essentially sounded Italian, so it's probably a reference to that. The fact that uh, Poe calls him both a prince and a duke is related to the fact that the, the Italian city-states, the rulers would change frequently and they would take whatever title seemed appropriate to them. Um, they didn't necessarily want to call themselves king because king implied that they had uh, you know, designs on the neighboring city-states, so they would take other kinds of titles. Uh, when the Black Plague came, uh, people across Europe fled to the countryside to escape the crowded cities where the plague was worst. People also abandoned their own sick and dying loved ones, which is pretty clearly uh, equivalent to what Poe talks about with the Red Death. The Prince Prospero waits until his country is half depopulated, which is a lovely euphemism for half the people have died, and then he takes a thousand hale or healthy friends into his abbey, where they can bid defiance to contagion. There's a pretty clear theme of people in charge abdicating their responsibilities here. The prince may be wise, he calls him sagacious, but he's also eccentric, bizarre, and apparently mad. The best description is in paragraph 6, when it says, There are some who would have thought him mad. His followers felt that he was not. It was necessary to hear and see and touch him to be sure that he was not. It's also clear that the escapees recognize the insanity of what they are doing as they weld the gates shut with the express intent of preventing ingress nor egress to the sudden impulses of despair or of frenzy from within. So they expect the possibility that somebody inside will go into a frenzy, into a mad state of chaos and attack, and try to rush out, and they don't want to allow that. Um, they shut themselves away to have fun, and it's when they try to have maximum fun that everything falls apart. So the question is whether the prince and his companions are evil. I don't really mean evil, but whether they are um, to be judged by the audience because they should be doing more to help or whether they are evil because they believe they can escape death itself if they have that arrogance to think that they can conquer the natural, uh, the natural world. It's worth looking at the characterization of the prince, especially, and also at the timing and symbolism of the final scene. All right, so I'm going to go through this paragraph by paragraph. Paragraph one starts with an incredibly dark tone, as dark and frightening as it could possibly be. Um, it's worth noting that blood on the face is the sign of the plague, and the specific trigger that makes people abandon each other to death to, quote, shut the victim out from the aid and from the sympathy of his fellow men. So blood on the face is the thing that makes you um, a pariah, a, a thing that is abandoned, a, a thing that is no longer considered a fellow human that people will just leave behind to die and suffer. Uh, and it's horrible to think of. And then when he ends this with the idea that it only takes half an hour which, of course, is absurd for any real disease, but the thought that from the moment you catch it until the moment that you die suffering and bleeding as people run away from you is only 30 minutes. I mean, there's no chance to do anything. There's no chance for even a priest to come and give you the last rites, which would have been you know, required uh, primarily in the Black Death time, but also pretty much still in Poe's time. So it's a horrifying thought. But then... We go to paragraph two, where there is a complete tone shift in the first sentence. Look how happy the prince is. He's happy. He's dauntless. He's sagacious. I mean, he's impressive. There's an implication here that he's a tragic hero, maybe, because tragic heroes start off grand and great and then end up destroyed by their own fatal flaw. And it's pretty easy to see that the Prince Prospero is, is arrogant. So that's a very common use of fatal flaw. 
Uh, the name Prospero, in addition to sounding kind of Italian and obviously sounding like the word prosperous, meaning wealthy and well-off, um, it's also a reference to uh, Shakespeare's play The Tempest. Prospero is the protagonist. He is the rightful Duke of Milan, which is a city in northern Italy. Uh, in The Tempest, Prospero becomes a sorcerer in exile by studying books, and he gains you know secret hidden powers. Um, it might be intended in this story to represent the arrogance uh, of the prince in, in the Red Death and belief in his ability to control the world, that he has um, supernatural powers, as in greater than nature, more than nature. It certainly connects him to the, the line about the Duke's love of the bizarre and how weird and nightmarish the, the masquerade is that he creates. Um, so, in the second paragraph, they say, The external world could take care of itself. In the meantime, it was folly to grieve or to think. This line may actually imply that the courtiers are not evil for abdicating responsibility. If the world can take care of itself, and it is folly to grieve or to think, then there's nothing they could have done, and they might as well have fun while they can. The list of entertainments is interesting, as it starts with clowns, buffoons, and ends with wine, and has beauty capitalized. So there's this idea that it's both um, base and sort of, you know, simple, in that, you know, buffoons, you watch them fall down and hurt themselves, and then you laugh, and then, of course, when people are drinking wine, there's both a, a high-end dignified glory to it and also of course there's the madness of drunkenness um and then you go from these sort of uh simple sensuous pleasures to beauty which is capitalized and so has this sense of um being grand and like you know the the the, the virtue itself the, the the very concept of beauty even more than just beautiful people or beautiful things to look at and apparently those are all inside the abbey all right, paragraph three, you should notice how short this is. It's one sentence. It's not Poe's longest sentence by far. Um, the contrast from the longer paragraphs before this shows emphasis. Um, this one focuses on the ball, the masquerade that is also the title of the story. It maybe implies that this ball, rather than the isolation, is the key choice that brings about the prince's downfall. So it wasn't that they locked themselves away. It's not called the seclusion of the Red Death or anything like that. It's the mask of the Red Death. So maybe the issue is that they have a ball, that they have a party. Not just that they're closing themselves off from contagion. That may be seen as quarantine, maybe the right thing to do. But the fact that they're partying, that's the thing that makes them evil, that makes us judge them, that you know brings about their, their consequence. Uh, look at the diction choices in this. During the close of the fifth or sixth month of seclusion, close implies an ending, death. The end of the month might imply Halloween or New Year's, which are both occasions when people have masked balls. The pestilence is personified by saying rage. The pestilence raged most furiously abroad. And the prince's ball is of the most unusual magnificence, which could be saying that it is unusually grand or that it is magnificently strange. And once we get into the description, we see that it's pretty much both. Paragraph four, uh, just as one literary moment, uh, this is the first personification of the speaker. He says, but first let me tell you tell of the rooms in which it was held. So there is a person telling us this story, which maybe has an influence on how we're, how we're supposed to listen to it. Um, there's a sense of eagerness in this, that the narrator can't wait to tell us this part. This is the good part. Wait, wait, I want to tell you this other thing. But first, let me tell you about this thing. All right, so let's talk about the room. The ultimate party place, the medieval rave spot. 
So an imperial suite of rooms is a single very long room that has movable walls. Think of those accordion sorts of walls that divide community buildings in some classrooms that normally divides the single huge room into seven separate rooms all lined up. This room is the same thing, but it's bent with each of the seven sections connecting at an angle to make a corner you can't see around. So even when they're combined, when you pull the accordion doors out of the way, they're visually separated. Each room is decorated mainly in a single color. The walls match the ceiling, match the floor, match the tablecloths, match the upholstery on the chairs. The colors are listed from east to west as blue, purple, green, orange, white, violet, and red and black. There's certainly symbolism in the direction of that, going from sunrise to sunset, from the start of the day, which is birth, to sunset, which is death, at the end, east to west. Maybe there's more in the colors, but I've never quite believed it. You can find all kinds of things online about how they say that, you know, blue is a young, innocent color and then purple is aging and so on, but it doesn't quite track for me. I'm always a little sad that it's not actually a rainbow that doesn't go red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. That would be even cooler. But anyway, in addition to the rooms being color-coordinated, they have very special lighting. Each room has stained glass windows, gothic windows, so tall, like church windows with a peak with a pointed top, in the walls on either side. Um, remember, once the dividers are removed, each room has only two walls because it's just a section of one long room. Um, and in the stained glass windows, the panes match the color scheme of each room. These windows do not look outside. Outside the party room is a closed hallway on either side. There's two hallways. And the windows look out on that hallway. And in the hallway, there are braziers, like fire pits, throwing firelight through the stained glass. So the light in each room is colored like the room. Imagine if you were wearing white, you would turn the color of each room as you went through it. But because each room is decorated with the same color, you wouldn't realize the light matched until you saw it shining on something you knew was a different color from the room, right? So if you're wearing white, you look ahead, you just see a, a blue room, and then you walk into it, and all of a sudden, you are blue, and you match the room. Poe was the ultimate party planner. And of course, the last room, the black room. And once you walk inside, and only once you walk inside, would you realize the light was blood-colored because it would just be shining on black decorations and you wouldn't notice it. And that would, of course, turn your face, your skin, any part of your exposed skin, if you're white, and presumably the people are, it would turn it the color of blood. Remember the initial description of the Red Death. The scarlet stains on the face are what sets people apart and shows that they're going to die. And then ask yourself why anyone would set that room up for this party in this place with these people. All right, paragraph five. But now it gets worse because now we get the clock. The clock is of ebony, which is a black wood and is on the western wall, the sunset wall. Clearly it's the death clock. Great band. Nobody goes near it. But that doesn't matter, because it chimes every hour, and its chimes can be heard throughout the entire rave room. And the sound is so weird that it makes the musicians stop mid-song and sit in silence to wait for the clock to stop chiming. And when the musicians stop, the dancers stop mid-step and stand there in awkward silence while the clock chimes. Then, when it stops chiming, they all laugh. And then they start moving again and playing music again. Just picture that scene for a second. That this huge party is going on, that all of a sudden this clock chimes. Everything freezes in utter silence while the clock chimes. 
and then they laugh and then go back to their party. Uh, Poe makes a point about the passage of time in this. He drags it out by enumerating first the minutes of an hour and then the seconds of an hour and writing out the numbers in words. It makes the sentence pass slowly, though he also calls it the time that flies. It seems to be saying simply that time passes differently according to our perceptions. Specifically, this clock drags out the time that otherwise would pass quickly. As we all know, time flies when you're having fun, but apparently it falls to the ground when you hear the death clock ring. So the clock pretty clearly represents death, or more specifically, the inevitability of death. Even though they stay away from it, it reaches out and stops their fun every hour, and they tell themselves they will resist it, but they can't. The question is, why does the prince have this clock? We're told expressly that he designed everything in this castle, in this room, and at this party. Is it a memento mori, a reminder that we all have to die, intended to make our lives sweeter with the recognition that life is short? That kind of makes sense, but it goes against the idea of this whole self-imposed exile intended to bid defiance to contagion. They don't want to die. They don't want to think about death. And in fact, when the death shows up, he freaks out. So why would he want to have a clock that reminds them all that they're going to die? Is he messing with all of his friends? He's just trying to scare them? That doesn't go well with his reaction to the Red Death. He doesn't seem to want to think about the death of trying to escape. I can't imagine him putting this clock in this room without thinking about the significance of it. Just like, hey, yeah, giant black clock, red black room, sweet. Personally, I like the thought that the clock just magically appeared in the rave room, that nobody knows who put it there, it was just there, and everyone was too freaked out by it to ask who brought the death clock. Anyway, paragraph six is another short paragraph with another change in tone to what a great party it is. Then it transitions immediately into how weird the prince is. He is described in rapid succession as peculiar, fine, unique, and unconventional, which is above mere fashion, which is mostly positive for the prince, but also he's bold and fiery. He is barbaric, though still glowing and lustrous, and then mad. Well, maybe mad. You have to touch him to be sure he isn't mad, which is bizarre and cultish and maybe even devilish. And it was certainly interesting that it implies the audience, or at least the courtiers, are the ones who have a questionable grasp on reality, that the prince might be an illusion and must be seen and heard and felt to know that he is real, or at least that he is not mad. Um, I say cultish and maybe devilish because it's this idea that you have to, his, his personal charisma is what convinces you that he's worth listening to, that he's not someone who's just a nutball. You have to be in his presence, close enough to touch him, in fact. And that sounds like a cult leader <clears throat> or something like that. So um, it's a weird description. Uh, and like I said, the idea, especially that he is maybe not really there, that only if you touch him are you assured that he's right in what he says, um, that lines up pretty well with uh, the Red Death, who's not really there. Paragraph 7. Paragraph 7 is support for my theory that the clock appeared on its own. The prince says the prince directed, quote, in great part, the decorations. Not all of them. Not the clock. Anyway, right after saying the prince might be mad, we get that he is the party planner and also the costume designer, and he made them grotesque. Note that the word doesn't just mean ugly. It means incongruous or inappropriate to a shocking degree, which, with the following description of masqueraders with unsuited limbs and appointments, meaning their costumes, their decorations, even their limbs, 
are somehow off, unsuited, incorrect. Imagine someone in costume with one-foot-long legs and ten-foot-long arms, or three arms, or arms where the legs should be. Hernani is a play by Victor Hugo set in the Royal Court of Spain, which is renowned for its lavish staging. That's probably also the source of arabesque, which is uh, from the word Arab, of course, from the Moorish influence in Spain. The word means basically strange and otherworldly to pose American audience, you know, from those outsider people all the way over there in the weird place. Uh, he goes on to describe the party as the fancies of a madman and a multitude of dreams. If you imagine all the strange things you've ever dreamed, walking around in that color-changing rave room with the death clock freezing everyone in their tracks every hour, you've got the picture of this party. Poe emphasizes this image in this paragraph and strengthens the tension between the manic, churning, chaotic life of the party, he calls them frenzied, and the somber doom of the black and red room, the room of the death clock. Paragraph 8 starts with the same image as the last, the feverish life, the whirling revels. Then the clock sounds, and it all comes to a halt at midnight. And suddenly they notice... Not that the figure arrives, doesn't say the figure arrives, or that someone appears. The people at the party have the leisure to notice him. In the moment when they stand still and can do nothing but think their thoughts, that's when they notice this figure who might have been among them all along. Because who would have noticed this guy among all of these nightmares? This is a possible theme or message of the story, that we try so hard to live, to live as much as we can, as fast as we can, that we ignore the truth. Our chaotic madness blinds us to the truth that death is right there with us all the time. Uh, it's a really beautiful depiction of that rising awareness in the last two sentences. And thus too it happened perhaps that before the last echoes of the last chime had utterly sunk into silence, there were many individuals in the crowd who had found leisure to become aware of the presence of a masked figure which had arrested the attention of no single individual before. And the rumor of this new presence having spread itself whisperingly around, there arose at length from the whole company a buzz or murmur expressive of disapprobation and surprise, and finally of terror, of horror, and of disgust. We go from silence to attention to rumors and whispers, with all those sibilant sounds to give us an onomatopoeic sense of the, the whispering, to buzzing murmur, to terror, horror, and disgust, where you've got the gasps in horror and terror, the spitting tooth clenching in disgust. And also it increases energy and emotion along the way. It's very cool. Paragraph 9 has another appearance by the narrator. Uh, perhaps this is the other key moment of the story's theme. This may be the other important thing that he wants to say to us directly. Though interestingly, there's some awareness of the story as a created thing rather than a reported truth. Because he says, it may be supposed in an assembly of phantasms such as I have painted, which implies that he's created this, right? That he painted it. He's um, Certainly it could be saying that he's represented the story, but also painting is, it's not photography, it's interpretation. So there's some element of uh, the narrator having an influence over what we're understanding here. Um, the line, the, fi the, the figure had out-Herod Herod is shorthand for taking the most extreme, shocking, essentially unforgivable action. Because the biblical Herod, Herod the Great, upon hearing that the king of the Jews, Jesus Christ, had just been born, decided that all male children under the age of two should be murdered. And even after this analogy to the most extreme of actions, Poe says, and gone beyond the bounds of even the prince's indefinite decorum, 
So I guess Herod is too much even for Prospero. Is that our measure of this ruler? Is he a callous tyrant like Herod? Is this understatement supposed to show the depth of Prospero's madness, his love of the extreme? The narrator steps out of the story to give us two truisms right then. There are chords in the hearts of the most reckless which cannot be touched without emotion. And even with the utterly lost, to whom life and death are equally jests, there are matters of which no jest can be made. This seems to be a comment on the powerful and wealthy, who become jaded and apathetic to everything, particularly the suffering of others. Poe calls them the utterly lost, which is both lovely and poignant, and a pretty serious judgment on these people. Following this up with a comment that the partiers see neither wit nor propriety in the red death costume seems to be sarcasm, a mocking depiction of these courtiers. They see this man dressed up as a red death victim, and the first thing they think is, is that funny? And then they think, is that appropriate? And they seem deeply to feel that it is neither funny nor appropriate. But though they are offended, they had to think about it for a minute before they decide it's a party foul. And we're told that it is a party foul before we get to what shocks them so much. And Poe lays it out piece by piece, tall and gaunt, dressed like a dead man, wearing a mask that looks like a stiffened corpse. And in the last two sentences with the red death and the scarlet horror, blood. The man's clothing and mask is dabbled and besprinkled with blood. Such seemingly whimsical words for it. Why doesn't he say spattered or soaked or covered? It's a contrast between the, the horror of the blood and the sort of casualness of the Red Death figure, which maybe has the Red Death having a mocking tone, the, the, the character that is. All right, now we're paragraph 10. Notice the pace. These next three paragraphs are each one to two sentences. The action is speeding up. This paragraph contrasts the prince with the Red Death. The Red Death stalks slowly, solemnly, as if more fully to sustain its role, which could fit the actor idea, the mummer, that Poe calls him. But also, if this is the Red Death itself, then its role is to kill, isn't it? And walking slowly among the revelers, perhaps spreading the contagion, would accomplish that, would more fully sustain its role. On the other side, you have the prince, standing still, shocked, convulsed with terror and disgust, but then his brow reddens with rage. Notice that the Red Death's brow is also red. Paragraph 11 is the rage of the prince. He uses the royal we. Uh, the royal we is how a ruling monarch refers to themselves when they're speaking officially, because as the ruler of a nation of people, they are considered to be speaking for all of those people. And it's especially ironic since the prince has abandoned his people outside the walls. And then he calls himself the royal we and says we and us. He calls the Red Death's costume blasphemous mockery, in fact, directed against us as though we are a religion and those who defy our standards are committing blasphemy. He has already determined that the man in the costume will be hanged, and he plans to hang him publicly, visibly, as an example. Perhaps we're seeing the prince acting like a tyrant here. Paragraph 12. It's really interesting, actually, that this paragraph is separated and isolated. It's a description of the man speaking from the last paragraph, so it's not a change of subject or speaker or scene. The only reason to separate this paragraph is for emphasis and pacing. The only information here is that the prince is in the blue room, farthest to the east, when he speaks, and that he is strong, bold, and robust. It's maybe interesting that the prince stops the music, just like the death clock does. Maybe there's another parallel there. The short paragraphs make this all seem very fast, single events moving by in instants before we move on to the next event. Paragraph 13. Here's where everything slows down. And it's not an accident. 
this long paragraph, which has an absurdly long sentence, the third sentence from, but from a certain nameless awe, is 123 words. Uh, this whole paragraph is switching into slow motion for the final climactic explosion. And also, this is the final moments of life for our hero. So it's like time is slowing down for him as he dies. Poe starts by repeating where the prince is standing, emphasizing the symbolic importance of this room's arrangement. In the blue room, the prince is hale and robust, though his courtiers are pale. And then this very long sentence, dragging out this list of rooms one by one, even though we already know what order the rooms are in. This heightens the suspense here, as we follow the Red Death's slow procession through every room, past every courtier. Maybe through every hour of the day, from sunrise to sunset, or every stage of life, from youth to death. Then the prince charges, by himself, as everyone else shrinks back in fear, carrying a dagger, even though he planned to have the man hanged. And it's a fascinating image. The prince charging through this enormous party, a thousand people in one long twisted room, right? Where the people are pressing back against the walls, where the colors change with every turn, and he's running with a dagger held high over his head all the way to the final room, where as soon as he reaches the edge of the black and red room, the red death turns and faces the prince, and the prince dies instantly. Then the courtiers charge with the wild courage of despair into the black and red room in the shadow of the clock. Um, how does it cast a shadow? It's a black clock in a black room and it's against a wall that isn't the light source. And they grab the figure and rip his costume off and there's nobody inside. It's a great spooky moment that is honestly a little lost because of the complexity of Poe's language. But he puts it at the end of this long, drawn-out, suspenseful paragraph. This is the climax. Prospero dies and the Red Death has no body. Paragraph 14 this is, paragraph is one of my favorite moments in all of literature. Every sentence but one starts with and, because each one is the next inevitable step after the last sentence. At the end of the last paragraph, the Red Death killed the prince and didn't have a human body to be killed inside his costume, and so now they acknowledge the Red Death's presence. It's fascinating that as soon as the Red Death has no body, that's when his presence is clear, right? He's not there, which is how they know he's there. The paradox is emphasized by Poe continuing the personification with he had come like a thief in the night, even though we now know there is no he. And then as soon as the Red Death is acknowledged, notice he has always been present, but now they admit it. The revelers die. And then as soon as the revelers die, the clock stops. The lights go out. And darkness and decay rule everything. Every sentence strikes like the tolling of the death clock. Short, strong, rhythmic, boom, boom, boom. Now that is an ending. So what's the point of all this? I have to note here that Poe did not like stories that made their meaning too clear. He had a famous feud with the poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow because he thought Longfellow's poetry was too obvious, what Poe called didactic, meaning it was like a teacher giving a lesson spelling everything out for the reader. Poe did believe that writing should have meaning just below the surface, but his primary goal, the surface goal, was to create a single, powerful effect in his audience. So from Poe's point of view, this is primarily a story that creates a bizarre scene and has a horrifying ending, the Red Death stalking through the rooms full of nightmares, which all then fall down and die bleeding. I will also note that Poe had a hard life filled with loss due to disease. His mother and his wife died of tuberculosis and terrible father figures, as his father abandoned the family and his adoptive father frequently treated Poe like dirt. So if you want to read this from a biographical standpoint, it's right there. 
disease everywhere, horror of disease, the Prince Prospero being a, a distant and, and callous and useless father figure. But, as I said before, I think of literature as a conversation. And though Poe might have been writing this as a conversation with his fathers, that's not what I want to talk about. I want to focus on the actual story, the words on the page, more than on the man who wrote them, either how he lived or what he believed. In this story, to me, it seems very much like the point is that death is inevitable. The clock chimes out their last hours, freezing them in their tracks. They recognize that the red death, the contagion they tried to bid defiance to, has been there all along, and then it kills them. These people tried to escape death, but they died anyway. Simple. But the thing that throws me off is the horror. The Red Death is a horrible way to die, and all thousands of the courtiers die of it all at once. Imagine that scene. They're all in the same room, bleeding to death in great pain, in the place where they were partying. Now the rave lighting seems just completely terrible. And they die in this terrible way after they are forced to admit their mistake, after they acknowledge the Red Death. It seems like a parable with a moral. These people did wrong, and they suffered for it. But what about the prince? This is all his idea, and he was the one who should have stayed and taken care of his people. He is the prince, after all. But while he dies in the middle of his triumph, no less, he doesn't die horribly, he dies instantly. He is spared the, forgive me, bloodbath that follows. Shouldn't he have suffered the most? I want the story to be about abdicating responsibility. These rich, powerful people go off to have a party while the poor are suffering and dying. Poe tells us right from the beginning that the Red Death is so frightening that it drives people away from each other, that the victims are denied even the sympathy of their fellow men, and these courtiers are unsympathetic in the extreme. I want this to be a judgment on their callousness. But the Red Death itself is the source of that cruelty, of that fear. And the Red Death doesn't come in a blaze of righteous anger. He comes like a thief in the night. Heck, it's his party. The story is called The Mask of the Red Death, and the spelling of mask with a Q-U-E comes from masquerade. This is the Red Death's ball. Which maybe means that Poe is attacking not the people, but death itself, specifically death by contagious disease, for being so terrible that it creates these separations, that it makes people act in this way through fear for their own lives. And then it's the, the having the Red Death create this ball is almost like it's laughing at us, it's mocking us. Poe made the disease so terrible and so fast and deadly that there was nothing that someone could do for people suffering for it, from it. And the quite natural instinct would be to run and hide. When I've taught the story in the past, my students have had a lot of trouble condemning the courtiers for locking themselves away from the disease. And as I sit here in my house trying to make this podcast for people who can't send their kids to school in a, currently country, in a country currently doing social distancing to avoid the coronavirus COVID-19, I really can't blame the prince and the courtiers for shutting themselves away. Maybe I can blame the Red Death for making people turn callous and selfish. Maybe that's the point. But at the same time, that callousness and selfishness is wrong, and it seems to bear a pretty heavy penalty, which the Red Death itself doesn't suffer. So maybe it's not just saying this thing happens, maybe it's saying this thing that happens is bad for it happening. So I say that, while Poe doesn't want to just point and shake his finger at people who ignore the suffering of others... He gives us a story of people who do that and who we can't resist criticizing for their actions. The prince is a bad ruler who abandons his people, and going into this castle to party for months while the subjects are suffering outside is a horrible thing to do. The idea of quarantining is not unreasonable, he says from a social distance, but we should not cut our fellow human beings off from our sympathy, from our empathy. The very least we can do is care. 
I think that's it. So that's everything. Thank you for listening. End of episode one. Uh, if you uh, want to say anything to me, if you have any comments, then please feel free to go to my website. It is www.theodenhumphrey.com and you can leave me a comment. Thanks very much.